This is the nerdiest panel at SF Music Tech called Data Analytics Eating the World. What a fine, good-looking group of nerds we have here. <laughs> We're going to skip the intros because if you find our speakers compelling, which I think you will, uh, you can check out their bios and, and impressive backgrounds online. We're going to talk about how data and analytics is transforming all sorts of industries from the Navy, politics, mobile, fashion. We had one speaker from the food business that wasn't able to make it here, but I can talk a little bit about that. And we're going to jump right in. So this phrase, software eating the world, was a Mark Andreessen post, Wall Street Journal op-ed piece that he kind of popularized. And I looked at the year. It was 2011, which is quite a long time ago. I thought it was more recent than that. But people have always had to make decisions in their business, whether there was data there or not. And so I would like each of the panelists, Mark, Artie, and Karen, to walk through kind of the industries they're most familiar with, politics, mobile, and fashion in this case, and see what data sets and sources were the industry using 10, 15 years ago. And then we're going to explore more about how to bring data to non-data-driven industries. And we'll leave plenty of time for questions at the end. So. Which data sources were used in your industry? What industry are you in 10, 15 years ago? You start? Yeah. All right, sure. So I guess over the course of my career, I've seen it, seen the data go from like fairly stupid data, but what at the time was groundbreaking to very intricate data, which now requires much more qualitative research around it. So that is to say the more the more specific quantitative data that we have and you're trying to make decisions around that data, the more you have to actually just sit with people and do qualitative research to marry marry sort of like why the things are happening to what's happening. So talking about your most recent campaign yeah. experience. Yeah, so it says on my badge Sonos, but I I start there Monday, so I don't. So don't ask me any questions about speakers yet. So my most recent gig was with uh, the president's reelection campaign. Did that for the past year, and that was one of the most detailed usage of both quantitative and qualitative data that I've ever seen. There was data that was being used from stuff like set-top boxes, so being able to see like how people were engaging with their televisions, so you'd be able to know where to buy television ads. So for instance, TV Land is a great place to buy television ads if you want to get people to turn out to vote, turns out. And we, we found that out because we were able, uh, by marrying this quantitative data with actually sitting down with people that were seeing those ads and, and seeing how that was not only shifting their perception, but it was shifting their behavior. So making them less or more likely to go vote and less or more likely to go bring their friends with them. That was very different than the first real usage of data that I, I saw in like making product decisions was, you mentioned the Navy back in the mid nineties, there was no real public web presence for the Navy where I was a where I was a journalist and being able to take something as simple as when a ship would pull into a port in say Spain you would see requests for the websites of those ships that were very rudimentary you would see them spike so being able to go and take that data and take it to the Pentagon and saying, hey, we really should use these sites as a way to talk with the port cities where these ships are going. That was almost 20 years ago now, and it's, it's become much more, much more detailed, but it's, it's... That's a good, good starting point. Artie? Sure. So my background's more in mobile analytics, and when I started doing this, it might sound strange because people track a lot of stuff on the web, but early on it was pretty difficult to track um, in mobile, especially when you tried to apply web tracking mechanisms to mobile. So I happened to be working at Yahoo at the time, and back then, to help sell data plans, companies like Verizon and AT&T would, would actually pay Yahoo anywhere from 15 to 25 cents per user per month. And at the end of each month, they would come to Yahoo and say, how many people use Yahoo? And you'd think, well, it's on Verizon's network, they should know this, and it's Yahoo's mobile website, they should know this, but neither of them knew for sure, and they would have all these crazy fudge factors to try to come up with a number that seemed reasonable, and somewhere along the line, someone was losing money there. I ended up doing some work for a company called Helio, where I helped them with their mobile search. And after about 
I don't know, five or six months, they want to make some changes. So, so I just asked them, which features are people using more than the others so we know what to keep, what to change? And their feedback was that they had no idea. And I thought, well, you have the stats, you should know this. But they didn't know how to track or how to look at this. And then finally, a, a third contracting company I was working for, it was a game company. I just asked them out of curiosity how many users they had. And they said, well, we have no idea. If you know any way to track this, let us know. And at that point, I, th I thought, well, there's something definitely missing here. I'm going to go build it myself. And that, 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 that's what I went off and did. Um, but uh, originally, it was tough you know, trying, to, when, trying to raise money and, and, and get some of these customers, trying to convince them that mobile analytics was different from web, tracking mechanisms aren't the same, the cookies aren't the same, those kind of things are, are, are quite a bit different. And you'd come across people that I always mentioned this earlier in the room that you have the sort of power users that are looking at the data, how they can make make use of it for product decisions to see the flow through an app, through a game, and go back and modify their gameplay to increase overall usage. But then there's the vast majority that just want to know are their numbers going up. They don't even care if it's accurate or not. They just want to know, you know, are the numbers going up? And that, that was kind of interesting. And Karen, in the fashion world, 10, 15 years ago, what data sources were people paying for? And, and so, I mean, I guess, you know, in the, in the apparel and, you know, just in consumer products in general, or just the creative industries, like you have what's currently selling today. So you have historical data, but the issue you have with that is that last season's bestseller is not indicative of what's going to sell in the future. And because product lead times are so long, you it's hard to react to something in time. And so if you have a huge miss as a retailer, um, you know, and I won't name any names, but some, you know, some do, then you're screwed because your product lead times are 52 weeks. And so the um, what data sources that have traditionally been within the industry are um, what they call trend forecasting companies, but they're all intuition-based also. So really, in this industry, a lot of decisions are made based on intuition, for the most part, um, on the product development side. And even the trend forecasting companies, it's really one person or you know a team of people saying, cobalt blue is going to be in style in 18 months, and here's some cool pictures to give you some inspiration. And that's really how the fashion industry works today. And today, it's still the same? Um, today, it's still, you know, I think there's opportunity for change. But um, today, especially on the creative side, I think for the most part, it's still a lot of decisions are made on gut. Like whether you're a buyer at Bloomingdale's or a designer, a lot of decisions are made on gut instinct, which is why you know, it's a really tough industry. I guess the one retailer that is using data in their creative process more is Zara. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the fast fashion retailer, but they're the one that actually takes consumer feedback and you know they have a two to three week production cycle. They like consumers will say whether they like something or not or whether it's buying and they'll actually move those decisions up the supply chain. And as a result, you know, fifteen percent of their merchandise is sold on discount, whereas the rest of the industry is at fifty percent. And it's brilliant they'll put two or three of each item in stores across the country and see which ones are actually purchased and then quickly turn around and print and ship out these uh, new merchandise pieces. So the hope here is that as we explore all these questions from different angles and different industries, uh, you can apply these to you know whatever world you're in, if it's startups or, or music industry um, or some other can area. Can I follow up? Yeah. Yeah, so um, Artie, you mentioned you were, that you, you were, you've been working with companies that aren't tracking anything. Right, so so how do you decide like the most important things to start tracking? Yeah, it's actually a, a good question. So I, I used to say if, you, if you're not tracking, you're kind of flying blind. Okay. Um, so it, 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 you know, they they go back to the, the vast majority. Just when I know are their numbers going up? Either you launch something or people using it. But I, I think what gets more interesting is when you start tracking all the different actions or you know the flows through. Um, a, a site or an app, so you can see how people are using, wh where they're dropping off, and you can go back and hopefully you, you perhaps learn something from that to, to fix it. Are, are people dropping off because there's some problem there, or um, you know, how, how can you improve their overall user experience? To, to basically, increase engagement. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on what you're trying to do. If you, yeah, in, if you're trying to increase engagement or just you know monetize ads or something like that, there might be something different to do. Um, so, in the campaign and with your clients and in fashion, which areas? Or, or people, either departments or types of people, are most receptive to data analytics and using data to make decisions? We'll just go down the chain. Yeah. Um, 
I, I found it was resistant as well. Yeah, I mean, analytics folks are normally really receptive to hearing about analytics. You know, bunch uh, of people. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is something that's that's, and I, I guess I sort of hinted at this um, in the first question, but the 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 folks that are normally the most willing to and willing to make changes based on analytics are the least likely or the the, um, the least likely to need to hear it right um, and so that's where like qualitative research and having product managers that know how to um, interpret data um, like that's that's incredibly important so finding ways to take um, to not just take the data that's already being um, uh, being, terp being interpreted and find wa finding ways to figure out what to change based on it, um, but to find ways to have those people actually drive what's being measured. Um, because the last thing that you want is to, is to be led around by the nose by data, to, to have the data making the decisions for you. You want to be in a position where you're choosing what data you're, you're, um, you're, you're, looking, you're, you're, you're trying to pull out and using that to help you make informed decisions. Where, where were the pockets of resistance within the campaign in terms of new data sources? Did you encounter someone like, you know, I've been doing this for years and trust the Gallup polls and don't show me this other stuff? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, uh, the, Who were with, those people? Yeah, so. <laughs> Name names. Is this being no, recorded? <laughs> um, so uh, it, so with, the, with the president's campaign, um, you had a group of people that um, were that are, are are still professional field organizers. So they their their job is to get people into a field office and teach them how to do the three things that get you votes: um, to knock on doors, make phone calls, and raise money. Um, so those people are used to doing it in that way. Like you get someone into a field office and you teach them how to make phone calls. You get someone into a field office and you teach them how to knock on knock on doors. Um, showing them like how uh, people are using the web to try to do those things, they're, they're always going to approach that through that, um, through that lens, right, of, of sitting with people and doing it over time. So those are often the people that, that, that are going to be least likely to be moved by data, people who have real world experiences, um, like, right, but doing things that are tangential to what you're trying to get them to do online, but aren't uh, necessarily the same thing. Were you able to show that you can improve the conversion or which doors to knock on better than they would know by? Right, exactly. So, so trying to find uh, data and um, uh, research from the field that sort of bridges that cognitive dissonance between where they are and what the data is showing you. Because um, if you can sort of like tell the story that fills in those gaps, um, that's how you're going to move folks that are sort of dyed in the wool, used to doing it a specific way, and don't want to change. Cool. And in mobile, where is the pockets of resistance and versus opportunities? Yeah, I touched on actually something Mark mentioned that's interesting is you know, needing someone to interpret the data. Because it's one thing to have all the data, but then, you know, what do you do with it? Um, and I think that's a challenge that a lot, a lot of times you, we come across. Um, so sometimes these predictive analytics solutions I, I often tend to like because they, they kind of help you with that, that maybe it, it does something automatically for you. Um, there's a company I saw that was kind of interesting called uh, Visual Re Revenue, where they can uh, optimize the placement of your articles on a home page. And it doesn't, it won't, forcibly do it, it still gives you the chance to, like, it makes the recommendation, you have to say, yes, I want to do this or not, but it, it's kind of interesting. It, it's doing all like A-B testing and on the fly and every you know, 15, 20 seconds checking, is this the optimal headline? Is this the, um, the, the, the best placement of the article on the page? All that, and it, it's kind of interesting stuff. Um, for, I guess, people that were the most acceptance, acceptable to, to uh, at least mobile analytics, were often people involved in advertising and marketing because they want to see are their campaigns, you know, performing well. That that, that was pretty easy for us. Um, uh, I think what uh, often got hard price selling any kind of software solution is you, you, those guys would be interested. Often product guys would be interested because they want to know how their product's doing, and then whoever had to implement it usually didn't want to implement something different. But um, th that's sometimes we find the resistance. Yeah. <coughs> And in, in the world of fashion, 
Yeah, I mean, I think just in the creative industries in general, I mean, we think about fashion from the sense of, you know, um, you know, almost as an art form. Like, it's, people in this industry are driven, at least in the high end, are driven by the ability to surprise, the PR you get, not necessarily the dollars. A lot of these brands are much smaller than they seem. And so, if you are killing what makes them, what makes people like surprised and wowed, then you kind of wonder, are you just going to turn into this mass retailer? And so, as you think about you know, I, I just, in general, if you think, you know, like data and like kind of selling, you know, some kind of story to someone, it really needs to be like, I mean, data can be a great thing if you turn it into insights. And if it's the wrong stuff, then it can be detrimental. So it's all about speaking the story to whoever your audience is. And so I think when I speak to a designer versus if I speak to a marketer, my story changes and how they would use that changes dramatically. Because if, no matter whether it's you know data driven or like whatever, if you can improve someone's business or help them do what they do better and can speak in their language, like they'll want to listen. We have a new uh, next big sound A and R tool for sorting through our data set, and I have to know very clearly before I go into a meeting if it's a research A and R guy or a traditional A and R guy, because one, I'm getting things thrown at me, <laughs> and uh, and the other one is very receptive. And it's binary. Let's talk about the ratio. Uh, this is going to be kind of guesstimates, but ratio of data-driven decisions versus gut-driven decisions in politics or the Navy in uh, any each of your worlds. I was at, at, at Twitter for three years, and that was always an interesting discussion to have. Is like, is this going? Is this decision going to be data-driven or is it going to be sort of like based on our get? But because you, because at, at Twitter, all of the people that were building it were expert users, right? They were people that were using Twitter every day that had been using Twitter for years, well, for as long as it had been around. Months. And, yeah, exactly, months. But the people that were showing up at the door were people that that were seeing this sort of it was like being dropped in the middle of Paris and not speaking any French, right? They, they had to try to sort of learn the language uh. as, they were, as they were going along. And so how do you, how do you f see like really large bounce rates, right? That's like, that's data that was coming out. People just aren't getting it. And, and so feeling like you had to do something drastic, whereas you saw in the qualitative research that if you made it, took a, if people took a series of steps, they got to this thing that changed in many ways their lives. So, and then you had people's guts that were like, so, so I don't think things really a binary decision as much as a sort of a tertiary decision around like, you know, instinct and qualitative research and quantitative research. But it's, I think it's gonna be a marriage of all, all three of those and just the, the percentage of stuff that you're pulling in from different areas is gonna shift. If you had to give a 50-50 split, or what would that be at Twitter? Um, at Twitter, it was, it was often very uh, quantitatively driven, but it was probably more gut-driven than it should have been, um, a lot more gut-driven than it should have been. But, there, but it, again, it was rarely like, this decision is going to be all gut, and this one's going to be all data. It's it's it, it like who are the people in the room and what are they likely to and and like how do they make decisions and what are they likely to listen to, and then trying to find the right mix of instinct, which which let's just call it like experience, right? That's really what the, what people are going on when they re when they're going off their gut, their personal experience, um, qualitative research and quantitative research. It's finding the mix of those three. So. I know that was a non-answer, but, I, but I, so, so, I would, so I would say 100% of the time, it's going to be a mix. Okay. I'm his hands. All right. New line of questioning needed. Um, well, I, I'd add some too. I think sometimes you find people use the data when it's when it's you know helpful to them, right? It's when I was at um, Yahoo. I remember one time there was they wanted to drop one of the the features off the mobile Yahoo mobile site, and, and it got significant traffic. And you could point that out the numbers there. It didn't mean anything. That was getting shut off. Um, but when we tried to push a, a new product, they would say, well, you know, these two others get all the traffic, so we're just going to focus on those two. And you have to say, well, you don't know if you do launch this, it could get more traffic than either of those two. But I think people use it when it suits them sometimes. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we're talk 
a lot of this is behavior change, and I'm interested in the most effective tactics you guys have seen in terms of integrating data into daily workflows of your colleagues, your clients, uh, or an industry. Let's start with Karen in terms of how do you make this palatable for clients and people you work with? So, I mean, I think it starts with um, navigating within the organization who is already kind of forward thinking about this kind of stuff and is actually like looking for a solution. I think that tends to be in like the social media or e-commerce group and they, they tend to be smaller and leaner and more forward thinking and now we've kind of you know, luckily I've hit this um, kind of breaking point where technology and social is super cool. And so it's like finding and navigating to those people and the, you know, finding your champions within the organization. Did they answer your question? Yeah, how do you find them though? (laughs) How do you find them? Uh, I think it helps if you're just in the industry and if you know people. I mean, and so like if, if I was new to this, you know, I think it would be really hard to figure it out. But if, you know, like luckily having a network, I can, knowing people just, you know, like, you know, going, I guess, you know, or developing a network, right? And so like understanding people and like, you know, with the, all your relationships, knowing other people who know mutual people like within organizations. And so you can kind of prepare and say like, oh yeah, he's totally into this type of stuff and she's not. And so finding who your advocates in the organizations are, it's, it's really like, I mean, I have to say just more networking. <clears throat> like, and half my meetings happened, you know, not in a real meeting, but it's like over drinks or like in social events. And then, you know, you're hanging out with people and happens to be someone who works at Burberry. So you plan a meeting. So if you're airdropped into the music industry, your strategy, networking and finding advocates and people who are already receptive to your message, that's good. Artie. Well, I saw one of our competitors did this really well. Their blog, they would post all sorts of research numbers and what they were seeing and stats, and I think that made them, you know, quite a bit of a thought leader and a, a, a site people would go to to see where the trends were in, in, in mobile. And I thought that worked pretty well and tried to copy it and didn't work as well for us. But it was definitely a good. Why didn't it work for you guys? I, I think we, we were a little bit late to the game and didn't have quite the right people doing the the reports but um it it, it was it, it, you know it's it's good stuff um we had the okay cupid founder who wrote the really great okay cupid blog post come by our office and talk to us about yeah. that strategy and it's fantastic oh yeah yeah because you know everyone's linking to it and citing it and um and, and the data is often fascinating when you some of the i mean i was mentioning earlier in the room we, we were tracking um uh, yelp at one point and, and match.com and there's, there's all sorts of interesting stuff that you see what people are doing on there, what they're searching, and it's pretty fascinating info. Cool. Um, so if yeah. you were airdropped into the music industry, you would become a thought leader with your writing and, and uh, telling well, narratives. I think for any of these things, is it's, I guess, multi-prong approach, but that's one thing, if you can show how the data is effective, like, you know, we'd have sales guys you hear it, the, the white papers the case studies those kind of things to show how how um, how, how the data could be useful or, or was effective in that example and then having the the you know the monthly reports like here's what we're seeing in the industry whether it's just top devices or what people are doing on their phones like fantastic yeah. and you changing behavior th- integrating data into a daily workflow yeah, in um, any of your various lives. Yeah, um, I, I think data is most often useful to just lie, light a fire, fire under people's asses. You know, um, uh, like folks that are really um, uh, hesitant to change, um, data can be a, 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 a strong motivator to at least get people moving. Um, but, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, not allowing the data to be the one who's making the decisions and not allowing the, the data to lead you around by the nose. So using the data to um, also help you get s- sort of to the, to the top of the mountain, but using qualitative data and experience to make sure that you're on the right mountain, right? Cause you, you know, you, you're familiar with this, this, the term of local maxima, right? Yep. So to make sure that you're like, so the data will sort of get you to the top of the of the um, the mountain where you are, but there might be a giant mountain next door, and data is likely not going to get you there. I was hiking with other people in Colorado where we started the company and used the term local maxima to describe the hill we were on, and got a bunch of funny looks. <laughs> um, let's talk about. 
Data's transformed finance and sports and, you know, the money ball sort of analogy before. Let's talk about industries. When you know that an industry is ready for data or ripe for disruption, what are some kind of warning signs um, that that transformation is either imminent and which industries do you guys think in the next three years are going to become swing to more data driven? Anyone can start. Um, well, I would, I would just say, like any um, uh, any industry where you see um, a, a greater opportunity for um, measuring, right? I mean, that's like because that's the basis of like that's where you're getting all your data from, right? But there's so um, like you, you see stuff like stuff like like Nest is doing with um, with uh, like cooling and heating your home, um, like that's sort of like the data that comes out. Of that, even even um, with just a few set of, of folks, will drive all sorts of of sort of tangential um, opportunities around like like um, uh, home heating management. I know that made it sound really uh, 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 boring, yeah. But um, but if you if you look at those at these sort of like in like what Tesla is doing, where they can and you know this was in the Times, you know this this past week, where they're actually measuring every single thing that happens around someone's driving experience. Um, the sort of tangential offshoots from these these companies that are doing really interest, interesting things in management. Um, that's where that's where all of the, the opportunity is going to come from. I like the insurance companies that track your car and in exchange for a reduction on your insurance premium, they track how fast you're going and all sorts of data around that. Um, what other signs do you guys look for in industries that are ripe for disruption data-wise? Yeah, I mean, basically, reiterate what Mark said. Anything where you can possibly measure something, and I mean, sometimes you just, you know, I guess you stumble upon some of these things. Like, I think, you know, if you were tracking um, whatever it is you're doing, I mean, I started getting into involved with all the fitness tracking things, like wearing the Fitbit, and then, you know, um, measuring everything I was doing, how often I was riding the bike, how, how quickly I was losing weight, like those kind of things, like. Um, yeah, you can, you know, with almost everything, you can apply some sort of measurement to, and it could be kind of interesting. Are there areas and arenas that you feel are immune to this sort of data-driven approach? Sectors. Yeah, it's not sure. I think the toughest one would be in the art sector, like really the creative. Like where it's really creatively driven, like you know, you can. I mean, I guess you can say what types of paintings are selling better or whatnot. But I mean, like where you really want, where it's. I mean, so much in fashion, art, even consumer products, is emotionally driven. You can't measure that sometimes, and so I think that's where it becomes the hardest. And just to answer your earlier question, I think systematically there's a few things you have to look for where there's opportunities and whether an industry is ready or not just number one is the quality the quantity and quality of data points you know it's interesting IBM said in the 90% of the world's data has been created in the last two years alone with all these social networks with search and all of this different stuff happening on you know there's so much data across so many industries and you know understanding within a particular sector what data points there are, and if that's actually valuable to improve decision making. You know, I think that's kind of step number one. You know, like, and you know, a good example, at least in fashion, you know, it's like the number one category on Tumblr. And if you look at the networks that are growing, or like Pinterest going from, you know, like just exploding in a year, like food is the top category on Pinterest. And so there's a lot of data points and preferences and things like that. And so I think on the second part is, is an industry ready? It's when looking at these data points, are there interesting insights? Is there something that it's telling you that you wouldn't have captured on your own? And then do people, the executives, do creators, do marketers start questioning whether they're making the wrong decisions? And I think when you have those, that influx of the um, amount of data and quality of data, and then people questioning whether their current practice is the best, is when you know that an industry is right. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I would I would add the, the the willingness of the industry to share data. 
um, uh, if, if you look at something, like let's look at the campaign for instance, um, there was all sorts of measurement that was happening around the campaign, whether it was data from people's set-top boxes, what ads people were clicking on, what people were doing with social media, um, what people were clicking on in email. Um, those were all different teams that were doing all that different work, but if that data wasn't being shared and the people that were doing the work in those, in those areas, if they didn't have access and um, synopses of that data, um, their decisions would be much more myopic. Um, so, and what you have, I mean, so let's look at the, at the music industry. It's a music, it's a music conference. Why not talk about music for a bit? Um, Weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there are a lot of music services, and I'm not just talking about music, um, music service providers, but just pe things that people do around music that are, um, that are trying to build good experiences, but they're, they're doing them, they're doing that with blinders on because they're only able to look at their data. So the, the, the faster that some of these, um, uh, some of these providers start to, to build alliances and share data back and forth, the, the, um, the better the experience it, it, you'll, is going to be for everyone, and it'll happen at, a, at an exponential clip, because they're not, they're, they just won't um, start, continue to optimize for their experience. They'll, they'll be able to optimize for someone's music enjoyment experience, which doesn't uh, you know start and end on their service? So we uh, so I was just with uh, Turner Broadcasting. You see something very similar on the TV side. Uh, that, that, that's sort of the like the holy grail is if you can track um, you know the TV, your desktop, and your mobile device. And and so some of it is exactly what you're saying, like the sharing of information. But then some parts technical too. Like how do you track that? Like how can, is there a unique ID that can go across all those things? And especially on the mobile side, when you have things like UDID that that um, you know Apple cracks down on. Um, it, it becomes a challenge, but if someone can solve that, that's, it's a huge, huge problem. Well, it's all these devices throwing off things. I got an email this morning from my scale at my house remind, saying that it was low on batteries and that I needed to, <laughs> to change those. And I don't need it. My scale emailing me, reminding me to do things or telling me what to do. Um, one thing on the data sharing piece, we have clients that are labels that give us iTunes transactions, Spotify, et cetera. We have agents for the same artist who can give us ticket sales information and, and sponsorship and managers who can give us merch data, but they're all on the same team and we haven't yet figured out a way for all of this data sharing to actually um, happen. Yeah, so, so keep doing that. Right, we're trying. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about the dangers of, I have two more questions and then we'll take some from the audience members. Um, let's talk about the dangers of data and having that hamper creativity or just what, what's the danger of using data improperly? Yeah. And have you seen examples where that is true? Um, yeah, that's, it was, someone was mentioning at the beginning about um, when I was at Yahoo, people would use it sometimes to, to, to for their benefit to either get rid of something or keep something, basically saying, um, we'll look at the data. Um, so I think, you know, it's one of these things where you, 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 when it goes back to the original question about uh, um, do you go by your gut or, or, or the data, so sometimes, you know, you, you should go by your gut or some, um, I guess, well-reasoned hypotheses, uh, and then use the data to, to see was it right or not um, uh, that's yeah one approach yeah any other other dangers yeah. Yeah. I mean I'm in the data business but I think if it kills creativity the world would be a really boring place if we were all wearing the same clothes listening to the same things seeing the same art seeing the same products like I'd want to shoot myself but if we can use that data in the right way you know, like if, you know, so for example, if everyone, you know, last season's bestseller was really hot, so we're going to reintroduce that. This song was really hot, so we're going to continue to play that everywhere. Like, life would be so uninspiring. So if we can kind of harness data so creative people can make better decisions, but that they can take risks in new areas and that there still is newness, you know, I think that's the important message that a lot of us and, you know, talking to creative industries, like, really need to 
think about like how they can use it to benefit their business, but then still be new and come up with something that's cutting edge that wows people that's like unexpected. And I think that balance is really hard. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. I mean, all too often, uh, data is 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 hung like this sort of Damocles over like people who are doing creative work, and it's like if you if you fuck up, if this number drops like you know by a percent and a half, you know you, you're you're not going to be able to do any more creative work. Like you're going to be you know stuck trying to figure out if the if the button should be chartreuse or you know eggshell. You know, um, th um, when data works, it's you used not as you know not as that but as a safety net that makes um, uh, that makes people doing creative work feel like they have that they have a team that has their back like a group of people that understand how people are using what they're building that helps them make better decisions um, and so that only that only works when it's built into the organization and you're using the culture right yeah. into the culture of the organization so it so it has to be tied with the with the the values of of the of the company and the experience of the company and what they um what th they see actually sitting with people using what they're building all of those things have to be tied to the data or else you end up with these knee-jerk reactions there's a company that provides data to food and beverage industry restaurants and they do the point of sale information and do all these sophisticated data forecasting things of here's when you should order your next you know bottle and here's inventory management and they were talking to a client and they were like you know we're really sorry our prediction algorithm forecasting you know how are you going to know when to order your next you know bottle of Jameson and he's like well I just look at the bottle and when it's almost gone I order another one <laughs> I don't know how many people are here from San Francisco but um, have you guys ever go to uh, bring your own big wheel the yeah. So I, I was wondered. And so it's it, basically people bring a big wheel, and they used to uh, ride down Lumbar, but now it's a uh, Vermont Street, I think, right? So it's a, the crookedest street, and so I always wondered what um, uh, you'd go to Target or Walmart, and they would be sold out of, of, of big wheels um, during the week leading up to this. So you know, what, what's there like purchasing? What's the guy saying? Like you know, we should buy more of these, more of these, but they only sell during that one week right. or two. But it'd be interesting to see. Yeah. Um, so I have one more question, then we'll open it up, and the question is what year will software analytics programs replace the need for human analysts entirely and I need an actual year from each of you in never. your industry or in general <laughs> I think never I think there always needs to be a human element yeah, I mean, you need someone to, uh, you know, interpret the the, the data. I mentioned before the predictive analytics. Some of that stuff's really interesting, and and in some cases it can just go on on its own. But it's nice to be able to have someone to look at the data too. That's not a year either. Yeah, this, uh, um, <laughs> I, I can't I can't I can't do the math right now. But hopefully it's uh, one year after I start collecting social security because <laughs> I'll I'll be out of a job. So. All right. Any questions from uh, the audience? There's a microphone there. And we had yeah, one here. Thanks. Thanks, guys. It's really interesting. I'd like to hear your opinions about the availability of open data sets in, and how that affects the momentum of big data affecting an industry. I think the trends that I've seen a lot in where data has really transformed an industry is either when they have access to a lot of open data or they have tons of money. Uh, neither of which apply to most of us in the music industry. Um, and I, th I found working, I worked at a small label and I was really interested in doing analytics and we used Alex, their great service. But the big holdup was always finding, acquiring this data. Um, and there was just nowhere to start. And I was wondering if you've seen correlations between the amount of open data that's available um, and the success in kind of that, having that transform the industry. And if so, like, should we, like, with all due respect to your product, which is serving an awesome need right now, should we be moving more towards a collective effort to share this data openly um, to really spur more innovation and have it benefit everybody at once? So the question's about role of open data in, in development. Uh, yeah, open data, do that. Yeah, no, so, um, yeah, that, that's good. That, I mean, ideally, Right, you would have all this open data, but the last thing that you would want is like uh, 
to, to have this need for data or a feeling of a need for data stop you from like starting to affect change, right? So so instead of um, like sort of framing it into like we need this data to make this, framing it in terms of like these are the these are the questions that we have, and then what data can we cobble together to start to make those change like to make the right decisions around those questions, and then once you have momentum, like then you'll have more clout to do more measuring, right? So, so I've, I've seen it quite often that the, the um, organizations will be afraid to make changes because they don't have the data to back it up, right? So um, trying to, um, even if it's a small question, like use that question and this small amount of data that you can cobble together to get a win and then start to try to find more data and build alliances to get more data from there um, to uh, start affecting change. And I think this is a great point. I think one area that's done a great job with this is the open government data sets and just that lends itself so perfectly towards open source and uh, allowing any smart mind with spare time to do this. I think Kaggle as industry competitions is great in terms of getting data out there. I would like to find a way to have, you know, the three and a half years ago we started collecting public social data for every artist and it's only three years later that we have this data asset. Um, and so how do we not just level the playing field for any competitors but while also enabling innovation? I think Kaggle and those sorts of competitions um, and academic partnerships we've tried several different times and are reached out to often and we always work with the institutions there but it is government and, and different areas I think that we spend 99% of you know our data scientists 100% pie chart is 98% data collection 1% models and 1% you know running the analysis thank you I wonder if you could comment on uh, quantitative qualitative data what sort of minimum data sets in, in order for I don't know errors or I've, I've been in situations where we've been making calls with you know 10 12 25 samples and it's sometimes felt what business are you in uh, music okay. <laughs> so uh, now it's not that we couldn't um, there aren't more customers out there it's all we could afford to hit or it's all the the um, valid data we got back but is there you know uh, is there some when it comes to quant and qual work is there some kind of number that you're shooting for where the data starts getting really good there is a website that I just found uh, where you put in what you're trying to prove and with what confidence level and it tells you how many people you need to get in order for that to be statistically true. I think it used to be like a thousand, pull a thousand people for something to be statistically significant. Yeah, and I think it's different depending on, so if you A-B test your website, your homepage, uh, if you want 95% confidence versus 99, those are different numbers. A thousand sounds good for now though. Yeah. Exactly. Right. 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 And I would, I would, I would still look at sort of like stuff like A/B testing or multivariate analysis. That's all. That's all, I consider that all quant. Um, so I mean, when you're looking at qualitative, I mean, well, first of all, let's just get the it depends part of the question, the answer out of the way. Um, that's but, what it should say behind this. Here. <laughs> it uh, but there was, I mean, there was some work done by this guy Jared Spool. You know. You know, ten years ago now, that showed that he was able to over over a series of studies find eighty percent of the problems with a site after five sessions. I mean, that's so. So it so it it depends on what you what like the question that you're trying to answer. If you're just trying to like find a bunch of bugs with your stuff, like like you know, five is probably going to get you eighty percent of the way there. Um, if you're looking for trends among uh, trends of usage uh, it probably depends upon how diverse the base is so for something like Twitter um, before we felt like we really had a feeling for the sort of path to enlightenment for Twitter um, that was around 150 or 200 sessions just because you're talking about a user base that is as broad as you know humans but if it's qualitative impressions of a song, you know, what is that? 
that number, right? T totally. So it's, it, and RJ Metrics was the blog, was the company's whose blog that tool is on, but I don't think it applies to qualitative data. Right. So if, if you're so if you're talking about a music listening experience, it, it, again, it depends on how diverse your your user base is. If you have a set of people that are all used to a very similar experience, then your your end size drops dramatically. Right, but if you're talking about trying to shift the entirety of the music listening experience, then you're talking about a giant end size. Um, where so then you you if you don't have the the resources to do that sort of stuff, you may want to shift your question, right, to something that you can take immediate action on, and then use that win to then get like let you get the capital to do the rest of the stuff. Next question. So I actually uh, come from this angle in Jared Spool's realm, and I'm a UX designer. In order to come up with creative solutions, there's kind of three areas, and you guys are touching on two of them, although we're talking about qualitative now. There's like the gut reaction, I'm an expert in this area, I know it's going to work. Then you have all this data, and it means this big thing, and business people are going to be able to point to it and say, this equals money, and yeah, we're going to go in this direction. But um, we're also talking about how do creative people still be creative with numbers and research and things like that. I think it's, for me, it's a middle ground and actually doing user testing and putting the thing that you're creating while you're creating it in front of people and seeing how they react to it. That's what inspires me the most and not necessarily the numbers behind it, but seeing somebody struggle with a button because they have to scroll a little bit down and you know numbers aren't going to really tell you why that's a problem you have to see it in action in order to solve it we were talking about this before where when we first started it was like we would sit down in front of a prospective client and say if you had a dream dashboard what would it be and then you know just how do you make sense of that versus here's two options of what this dashboard would look like and then you know, which one do you like better? And then real life testing, like you're saying, is they'll tell you the frustrations as they walk through it that you may not be able to find just from the numbers. And so a couple of other approaches to that would be um, like a field study where you're sort of mirroring the person. Um, another would be um, a diary analysis where you try to have them as they're not just using what you're building, but as they're just going through their life doing the thing that you're trying to study, having them take notes over time to let to, because that, that's another problem that we face, often face with data, is we treat it as a snapshot, um, as, as something that exists like in a mo as a moment in time, instead of people's usage shifting over time and how they get from one point in their experience to the other. That's something that data is, uh, that you have to be like very ad advanced to, to handle. NPD, who's a big data provider, um, is, stands for or stood for National Purchase Diaries, which is every week the homeowner would write down all the groceries that they purchased. How do you avoid, uh, if, if the goal of like a lot of your clients RT, I guess, uh, I didn't catch your names, is to find something that's just going up, just tracking something that's going up without knowing that it's you're tracking something that's actually um, meaningful to the business or comparable to other businesses uh, in the industry. So as an analyst, I follow a lot of industries, I see a lot of blog posts, and people are always putting out things trumpeting some number that's going up, obviously, to some big magic number, um, but it's not always a very meaningful um, either to their business or to any business. Um, the, the, the famous phrase is vanity metrics. So how do you avoid those and find things that you can track that have meaningful impact on your business? Uh, yeah, so th that was when I had the analytics company. We'd often, you know, go into uh, to pr prospective customers, and sometimes we'd say, "Oh, this is more accurate. Ours is more accurate than what you're using because it's using web on mobile, and she used mobile." And and sometimes, and they're, they're large brands. Um, we've all used, and they would just say, "Oh, we don't care if it's accurate or not. We just want to know if the numbers are going up because that was their success metric, basically." But if, if for some of them that we got through, and you could show, "Hey, here's the flow through your site. Here's where someone's dropping off, or here's where people are staying." longer and what you can do with that and we had um 
some good examples of that. We had a game company that they saw where people were idle the most um, in their game, and they decided, well, that's where they're going to serve up ads because that's where the eyeballs there longer, and hopefully, they, you know, they they click the ad, they make some money that way. And they also saw where people were getting stuck, and they fixed those things. So, I, it, it, given the opportunity, when you could show people how you could use the data, it, it's basically, like, I guess, educating them a bit. We've had a first-hand look at the music industry shifting in terms of which numbers they're looking at, and social media is great for vanity metrics and numbers soaring up and to the right because the total play counts only go up. It's beautiful. They just keep, there's more next time you look at it. Um, and so we get to see what tens of thousands of music industry people are setting as their KPIs in their dashboards, in their email reports, and notice the big change from the total volume metrics to engagement numbers. So. Instead of driving total number of Facebook page likes, they're trying to drive talking about. Instead of driving total number of Twitter followers, they're trying to drive at mentions and retweets. Theory being for all of these, uh, as the sophistication increases, that those uh, are most impactful towards revenue, which we always say that metrics with dollar signs in front of them are always the most important. Yeah, I, I, would, I would just add that if, it depends on at which direction you're trying to approach like pulling the the data out of like usage. So um, when I've seen it work, when I've seen data really work, is when it was tied closely to the organization's core values, um, and when what they were measuring directly could be directly tied to those core values. Um, so for say for the president's campaign, um, it was well one of the, the well I should say one of the core missions or the core mission was to get 270 electoral votes. So being able to tie every decision that was being made around like technology was being developed to like that core mission and to the president's core values is a way of doing it. Um, with with Twitter, um, well let me back up with the camp with the campaign um, that that meant like not making decisions based on like how many people were clicking on a button or how many people were completing a form, but looking to like how did that affect people's likelihood to like knock on a door, make a phone call, make a donation, make a second donation. Um, with Twitter, it was to like reach every person on the planet, to um, be a force for good in the world. Those are those sort of like you know, you know, nebulous in general. But finding um, uh, metrics that you can pull out that tie directly to those core values is when they affect real positive change and aren't just used as vanity metrics. Uh, we have time for one more question. Yeah, I really liked your uh, comment about data not being held over the uh, creative team. But let's talk about a little bit more about using data as the creative itself. Like I know you guys are using it as an end to a means, but you know I, I work for Livefire and we're big into you know curation and revisualization. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about your experiences? I'm sure that has a lot of effect on the music industry as well. Was it quite data as an art form? Uh, art form, but more or less using it. I mean, you talked about data, using data as a content marketing strategy to build thought leadership. But you know, talking about taking examples of the the social data that's happening right now, or even data from an application or a software, or even taking some standardized collective data and actually using that as a means to create new experiences for your customers, for your artists, or for your uh, you know fans. Um. I can, yeah, at, at, at Twitter, there's this dude, uh, Miguel Rios, who, whose job is that. Um, it's finding ways to use, to take how people are using Twitter and to turn that into an art form, to allow, to use like people's current experience in aggregate as a way to allow people to think more broadly about how it could be used or to, to allow someone who may not understand how it could be used to understand that um, uh, how it could be used but um, in their lives and that's um, that said I mean you know 98 percent of infographics are shit you know <laughs> yeah uh, give or take 2%, you know? Um, so uh, if, it's, if it's approached in a way that you just mentioned, right? If, if, the, like, if, it's, if it's not done as this sort of masturbatory exercise, right? If it's done in, in a way that's, 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 that's meant to help people think more broadly about the experience, then you're gonna, then, well then that's what you're gonna end up with more than likely. We did a very palatable 2012 state of the online music industry, and that's always our highest traffic day of the year is when that 
uh, goes out. Please join me in thanking Brian Zisk and SF Music Tech and our wonderful panelists. Thanks. Thanks.